Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today that I'm very excited about. It's our first time having an independent league coach uh, on the podcast today, and I'm pretty excited about it. I think you'll see why once we get into this podcast. We're being joined by Chad Rhodes. Chad is currently the pitching coach with the Florence Yalls. They are an independent team in the Frontier League, one of the best, if not the best, independent leagues in the country. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Rhodes before we jump into questions with him. He is a Originally from Bowie, Texas, he played collegiately at Oklahoma Baptist University, graduated in 2006, and out of Oklahoma Baptist, he was an undrafted free agent signed with the Boston Red Sox. From 2006 through 2009, he played minor league baseball in the Red Sox organization, reaching his highest double A. Actually had some pretty good numbers there through 256 career innings, 102 career walks, 250 career strikeouts. Not too bad for an undrafted free agent. Uh, 2010 through 2012, he played three seasons of independent baseball uh, for three different teams. Then 2013 through 2015, he spent several years coaching independent baseball. The last season, he was with the Florence Freedom, the same team he's coaching with now under a different name. He was there for one season as a pitching coach. Then on March 10th, 2016, which is actually his birthday, he signed to coach in the Miami Marlins minor league organization. From 2016 through 19, he coached in the Marlins organization as a minor league pitching coach, then as a rehab pitching coordinator. And then 2020 was his first year back with Florence, with the Florence Yalls. He'll be the pitching coach this year in the 2021 season. He's also coached some high school baseball and some college baseball, a little bit of everything. Uh, a, a great background and somebody that I'm really excited to talk about and again i think you'll see why once we jump into questions with him coach rhodes i just want to thank you for being on the podcast today ah uh, jeff thanks for having me we, we did have some good conversations uh, prior to this hey my only my only thing is i'll give you, you you said it twice and i'll give you one more throughout the rest of the phone call but hey coach is no longer in vocabulary you know i don't i don't like being called coach i'm not gonna hold it against you <laughs> What do you call yourself right now? You know, I like to go by I like to go by Rhodes, Road Dog. You know, when I work with professionals and we work with those guys, you know, it's kind of the first thing I'll get every single day from the, meeting those guys. Oh, coach, 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 coach. It's like I get that and I understand that and I appreciate the authority and the respect. It's like, but we're all grown men now. I have a job. You have a job. We're just doing this together. And so I guess the one thing in professional baseball is learning that hey, don't call your coaches coach. <laughs> hey Jeff, it's different though, and I know it's a podcast, but I'll give you one more. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. I, I now I never played or coached in pro ball, but I have. I've had guys that have uh, in college. It's it's real weird to me in college. There was I had one guy, and and he came from a junior college, and and the that coach used to play pro ball came from a system where guys call you call you call your coach by the first name so i had this one coach or with this one player that came in and called me jeff and it was real weird as a as a coach to player thing and i was like man i i just i don't know man i, I don't know i'm not sure where this is coming from but i I'd appreciate if you just call me coach stanick so anyway in this case uh, I appreciate you giving that insight. That's something I don't know if people, many people know. And, and again, me not having ever played or coached at that level, uh, I appreciate you giving me a pass on that. Hey, yeah, I'll give you one more. No, I think, so coaches, you know, you're going to call them, but maybe there's a nickname or something. But the manager, you're going to call the manager Skip, man, no matter what. Skipper, Skip. You know, you're not going to call him by his name or coach. Manager Skip and coaches are... Uh, Coaches are just another part of the cog and the wheel of a team. So I'm just I'm just equal with you. I'm where you're at. So you call me by your name, and we'll treat each other with respect as men. I like that a lot. Uh, so for this rest of this podcast, I'm going to call you Road Dog then, if that's okay. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I want I usually start with something from the bio that stands out for you. I've got you know several directions we could go for sure, uh, but in this case, I'd like to just kind of start with. Uh, your playing career, actually. I mean, I certainly most of this podcast, I want to talk about coaching and the things that you've done, but I would like to start because I, I read a little bit about you and about your playing career, um, you know, kind of how it ended and some things you learned from it, but that's kind of where I want to start. Your playing career, you're a five foot ten, 185 pound right handed pitcher that made it that as an undrafted player played professionally for four years and made it to double A. Pretty good numbers in the minor leagues, but I know that um, 
after you after you had Tommy John and you had a chance to kind of slow some things down, that's really when you started to sort of become who you are today without putting words in your mouth. But I wondered if you would just talk about that a little bit, about your playing career, um, how that impacted you, and how just that, that chance to slow down once you had Tommy John sort of got you on the path that you're on right now as uh, as a as a pitching coach. Sure. I, I think that, you know, when I grew up, I, I grew up in a small town, um, it was about 2,500 people. So sports and, and, you know, professional athletes in general, for me to get to a bigger city, I would have to drive, you know, an hour in any direction to get to a Dallas or Wichita Falls or something where there was more competitive, you know, a sports outlet. Um, I never really knew how, how I stood up with anybody else because around the area where I'm at, there wasn't a whole lot of good baseball players. But – I like to throw stuff. I mean, I, I grew up, my dad was a football player. He played college football, and he was in the rodeo. He did steer wrestling. And my brothers are all, they're both 6'3". I have two brothers, and they're 6'3", 6'4". Um, my mom's 5'1", so I always thank my mom for uh, the height. <laughs> but, but it wasn't really, you know, kind of football atmosphere and culture where we grew up, but I like throwing stuff. I like throwing rocks. I like just throwing stuff. And I, and I could throw hard. It wasn't, my playing career was the it was the same and it was very similar up until double A until I blew out Tommy John. It was I was more or less a caveman type of mentality where it was grab ball, throw ball hard. Guys can't hit that. Keep trying to throw it hard. <laughs> there was no thought to pitching. There was zero thought to account. Um, the only thing I did have uh, on others and over everybody else was work ethic. I think it was my dad was always you know these guys guys get paid a lot of money to play this game on TV and I'm like what. I didn't know anything about minor leagues or the big colleges or any of that as far as when I was coming up. It was just, oh, just work harder than everybody else around me, and I'll eventually rise to the top. And so anybody who I was around, I was always out working them. So the work ethic pushed me to be able to make my body stronger and to stay healthy. But my del- I never went to a pitching coach. My delivery was, was not very good. Um, my routine was terrible. I didn't know how to take care of myself properly, but – but the mindset of being able to compete against another person and, and my ability to throw, and, and I had decent command. I could move the ball in and out. It, but there was, like I said, there was no off speed. There was no plan to go soft here, hard here, establish the outer half. That way I can unlock it and be able to bust a guy in. No, it was just throw the ball hard as I could. And that took me to double A. It really did. And it wasn't necessarily the velocity. It was it was the mindset, and can, that's kind of the, one of the things that I get to be able to help with younger guys is the competitive mindset it takes to get to a certain level. Um, my pitchability and all that stuff it kind of hit a wall my first year in Double A when I learned I had to learn how to get the ball down. It was really learning what command was, um, learning how to put guys away, learning where I could go, and I got beat up that year my first year in Double A. Um, but I got to repeat the double-A and got to go back and figure out how to pitch a little bit more. But like you said, it wasn't until really when I when I blew out that I had to slow down and, and reassess my routine. And, and I was 26 at the time. So my body was getting a little bit older, but I, I still felt fresh. Um, it, I didn't really feel like there was any reservations for me to go back and compete against the best in the world. I knew what I needed to do, and, and I kind of I implemented that. And I started to figure out how to throw. Um, once I figured out how to throw and kind of came back from the Tommy John rehab that I had to do myself, um, I got married at the same time. And some things, you know, didn't fully work out for me. But that mindset and all that time that I took off from that injury really was leading me to, to evaluate my whole career and how I went about it. And how I can apply that, not only just trying to take my career into the future and, and further it, but how can I use this in my coaching career to be able to help others avoid some of the same obstacles and, and mistakes that I did. And so trying to ingrain in them the competitive ability, but with learning what it means to actually be a pitcher instead of a guy who just tries to throw a velocity that another human can't hit, which is impossible. But... I think the Tommy John, it did slow me down. In my playing career, it was, you know, I don't really look at it as far as the accolades and where I got to and 
and, and what I did as far as the rings I won, but I get to use my playing career and look at it and kind of think like, man, this guy's, this guy's dumb. This guy was an idiot. Let's look back over this thing and see where you went wrong and see how you're going to make adjustments. So if I look back at my playing career and go back and change something, you know, it, it would definitely be how to pitch and not just how to throw. I really, I figured out how to throw hard, but it wasn't how to pitch. And, but I do, I will say, and, you know, kind of unfiltered kind of comment is that your nuts can take you a certain distance. And then the trust in your work and your ability to compete can take you to a certain distance. When Once you get to that certain distance, which is double A, you know, you're talking about now you're at the 90 best teams in the world, 30 double A, 30 triple A, 30 big league. You're, t- you're working against players that actually have a plan, that have a purpose, that actually know what they're doing. And I was the guy thrown in that mix that didn't, you know, and it's hard to survive until you figure that out. So I kind of use my playing career to help guys figure it out before they get to that point where it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, trying to compete against guys who do. So I don't know if that answered your question as far as my playing career. Um, I'll ask, answer anything specific about it, but it was the same type of mindset going all the way through. I'm better than you. I'm going to beat you. And it was just kind of lay it out there on the line and see what happens. And then I kind of fully entrusted in my work ethic and ability to keep me healthy and to do that as long as I could. And it worked for a while, but eventually it plateaus out and you got to learn how to pitch. But I think that one quality that I take into my coaching from my playing career was the ability to go hard. There's a lot of different things I'd like to ask you that just based on a couple of things you just brought up, um, some a, a lot of places, a lot of things that you touched on. The first one is just to talk about what it means to pitch as opposed to just throw hard and try to throw past people, the caveman mentality that you talked about. So so now where with where you are, if you have a chance to talk to a young guy, and I know now like in the offseason you give lessons um, – can can you just sort of break that down for someone that's listening to this that might say like that that maybe doesn't understand the difference, um, or or just wants to hear it from your perspective when you finally learned how to pitch and now that you're a pitching coach that you're talking to guys about how to pitch as opposed to just how to throw hard. Can can you summarize that a little bit? Just kind of tell me what you mean by that, and and when it comes to actually pitching and learn how to be a pitcher what that means sure i think that you know the big difference between i'll I'll define it by uh kind of giving a couple examples and and i think that when i work with most guys at this level and kind of really to talk about the difference between throwing and pitching it's more of a a visceral experience you know it's more of the relationship and how the comments that i say you know shifts their beliefs into what they do into more of what's going to make them successful for their career. And what I mean is, is to me, I see there's a difference between a thrower and a pitcher, and, and I see throwers on the mound. And I wouldn't say that every single guy that gets on a mound is a pitcher. I mean, you wouldn't call all the position players that get to throw all the mop-up innings in the big leagues, I wouldn't call those guys pitchers. The, the outfield, the extra outfielder, backup catcher that gets in there and throws an inning, you know, to propel the game, I wouldn't call that guy a pitcher. So there's a lot of pitchers in affiliated ball and everywhere in baseball that are actually just throwers and they don't know it. Um, and, and one way that I kind of describe that is if I think about, if I'm a thrower, I was a thrower when I came up to baseball. If I'm a thrower, that means that my my priority and, and my prerogative when I'm going to a batter is to beat him. I'm not saying when I'm pitching to a guy that I'm not trying to beat him. But a thrower should throw at the bat. A thrower, if he's competing against a guy, he should know where the swing is, and he should be throwing to hit the bat, miss the barrel. Now, a pitcher knows the swing, and he is pitching to avoid the swing. So he's pitching to different zones. So if I'm a thrower, and my mentality is is not a clean, healthy, consistent delivery, and I use my effort to try and compete with then I'm not going to fine-tune that and try and throw it to the black. I'm not trying to throw as hard as I can to the black. I'm going to throw to the swing that I'm facing as far as competing against him. A pitcher 
knows how to control his body. His delivery is consistent. He doesn't overthrow. Overthrowing is insecurity. If I overthrow and I just try and throw this ball one or two miles an hour harder in hopes that I'm going to beat the batter, that's that's really a dumb way to go about pitching. It's not pitching. There's no thought process behind getting the pitch to the outer half to extend the hitter's eyes to cover the whole plate. Now he can't sit on either side of the plate. And once I hit the outer half, I opened it up. So now I opened up the inner half. Now he has to cover the inner and the outer half. There's a difference between me just trying to throw the ball as hard as I can and beat him on the outer half compared to pitching a pitch to the outer half. Now, that's just kind of an overall scope of an idea of the difference between a thrower and a pitcher. But as far as what makes a pitcher is responsibility of his throwing program. Throwing, in general, I just wrote a throwing program for my guys in Florence and, and the throwing program without even talking about what distance to start at. It's 10 pages long an explanation of what it is, like what it is at each distance. It's being professional in the way you go about your catch. A throwing program is not a, a calendar of days with throws and distances and rest periods and all that. That's not a throwing program. A throwing program is exactly what it says. It's a mindset. It is a program. So to me, a program is it's a set of coded instructions, you know, for a particular task. It is input. You know, I, I want there's input I'm putting into this guy. It's The program is the cause that I want to put into a person to behave in, in a certain way. So the throwing program itself is a mindset and how to prepare and go about when a baseball is in your hand, what are you thinking about when you're doing that? So to me, the difference between a pitcher and a thrower, it, it's more than what it is on the physical action. I think a lot of throwers try and fix externally what's wrong. Let me go to this pitching coach. Let me work on this delivery. Let me pick up these weighted balls. Let me do these bands. Let me throw this little gimmick. They're looking for something external to make them feel good internally. And it's, it, it'll never work that way. So I think a pitcher works internally. He knows he knows what he's good at, and he continues to make those things better. So a good pitcher knows what his strong side of the plate is. He knows when he can go soft. He knows when he can go to the top. And he understands that he's not pitching to a batter personally. He's facing a specific swing. So he's facing a swing, and he knows the, the hand speed of that swing can get to certain parts of the zone easier than than other swings. They have a left-hander with a flat, short swing. different than a righty in the box who's open with a big, long swing. So there's different things that you can attack and how you can approach those. So a pitcher knows that. A thrower doesn't. And he does the same thing no matter who's in the box or the situation of the game. So that that would be, I know it's going to, I'm kind of round and kind of hit every little quadrant of what it means. But specifically, there is a big difference between a thrower and a pitcher. And to me, that involves self-evaluation and, and knowing what you're good at. You um, kind of touched on this there, but I want to bring up something that I read that you that you wrote. I think it was in your, I think it was in LinkedIn, actually. I, I kind of, you know, dabble a little bit everywhere just to kind of learn about who I'm about to have on a podcast. And I just read somewhere, I believe, again, you wrote this, do you consider yourself a cognitive coach that believes it's not the hardware that's broken, with the pitcher, it's simply a matter of the software that you have programmed, and that, what, the, your your answer to that just kind of reminded me of, of that um, that a lot of that, that guys will want to fix if something's not going right, if they're not having a lot of success, they're going to want to to try to reprogram the hardware, try to change something mechanically, try to do this or that, or try to look at their analytics. Whereas, as you believe, it's sometimes a software issue, or maybe their their mentality, their approach, or or just learning how to pitch. Um, would you mind just kind of touching on that, just what you mean when you call yourself a cognitive coach that believes those things and, and how you incorporate that with your job now? I know you, you've switched teams uh, recently, switched organizations, but it's still you know still the same thing, I'm assuming, when you're, when you're working with pitchers. What kind of conversations do you have with guys? Um, you know, what do you see in games that leads you to, to have conversations with a guy where maybe a guy says, like, man, this is broken, I need to fix this, and you say, hold on now, it's not mechanical, it's something else. Can you just... Would you, can you talk a little bit about that and just about how you sort of arrived at at that um, 
that that place where you believe that it's more along the line. A lot of times, it's more the software that's the issue than the hardware when pitchers are having issues. Sure, I think I'll, I'll start that off by you know by prefacing it with you know we hear all the time that the game is ninety percent mental and ten percent physical, and I think that that gets said so much that it's watered down and that the meaning gets lost, and it's kind of like I'll ask my players, you know, I. You guys hear all the time that the game is 90% mental, 10% physical. How many believe that? You know, and they'll all raise their hand like, yeah, cool, okay. Explain it to me. What does that mean? Because like, obviously your work, the physical work that you put in, is not 90% compared to the 10% that you that you do as far as the way they equal out. If, if the game is really 90% mental and 10% physical, but you spend 90% of your time working physically on something that's mental – you know, what are you doing? So the way that I like to explain it and justify that the game really is 90% mental and 10% physical is, is by this. It's kind of ask you, what's, what's the length of an average Major League Baseball game? I'm probably about three hours and 20 minutes now. A ridiculous, right. much longer than yeah, it needs to be. About three hours, so 180 minutes. How, how often... Or how much during that time of a regular game is the ball actively in play, where someone is doing a physical action and the ball is actually in play? Isn't it something like 15 minutes? You're right. Yeah, it's, it's between 15 and 20 minutes. So if the game itself is 180 minutes, but the time the ball is actually only in play that somebody's doing a physical action is only 18 minutes, that's 10% of that three-hour game. But I like to break it down even further and say let's take a – Let's take a hitter. How many at-bats are you going to get in a game? Four or five. Four or five. Let's go five for argument's sake. How, how long does it take you to swing a bat physically? Like the, the actual swing? Yeah, I mean, a couple tenths. Yeah. A couple tenths of a second. Well, let's round it up. Let's round it up to half a second. So okay. five at-bats, half a second. How many times in one at-bat is, a, is an average hitter going to swing? How many times are you going to swing in one at-bat? Two? Guess, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. So two swings, five at-bats, that's ten swings, and it took half a second. So that's five seconds of work within the course of a three-hour game that that's going to determine your stats. That's what's going to go online. So the same thing when you break down a picture. The whole point being that what are you thinking about the other time? So the game is this length. The work that you're putting in for the past couple of days or whatever is only going to amount to 10 seconds worth of work. As a pitcher, it's only going to amount to maybe a minute's worth of work. So when you're out there. So to me, it is all in your head as far as what, what's going wrong. I know we brought up the, the, cognitive, the cognitive coach, and I do like to think that the reason a delivery gets messed up, the reason – that a pitch doesn't go the way it needs to go is because of what is prioritizing the pitcher's head. Now, I got an interesting conversation with a hitting coach last year and was asking him that every time a hitter got a hit and he thanked that hitter, or he, he didn't thank that hitter, but he, you know, he gave that hitter some props for that hit, does he ever think about the pitcher on those instances missing a location? Or did he think that every time that a hitter gets a hit, the pitcher executed exactly where he wanted to. Or, because in that same instance, I'll go talk to the pitcher who gave up the hit, and he'll say that yeah, he fell behind and he leaked open and he missed up in the zone and didn't throw the ball where he wanted to and got hurt. So it, it's kind of mentally, where are you at and what are you thinking about pitch to pitch and during the game is going to affect what your delivery is. Guys want to break down their video and their analytics. And I'm like, well, what's your analytics when, when you got a tight buckle? When there's runners in scoring position, do like, <laughs> your analytics change? Are you judging your analytics based on situational baseball? Because it doesn't make sense. And same thing with delivery. They're going to pick the cleanest delivery when nobody's on base and the situations dictate that there shouldn't be any pressure and you're way ahead in the count. So I don't put stock into, you know, the video and the analytics. It's, I, I want to know in the situation of that game when things start going wrong, when and why do they go wrong, and what can we do to be able to help that? Um, it's just making sure the priorities are pitching and not worried about, 
you know, the game or something that's external of what they're doing. I got to throw this velo or I got to make sure the ball's moving this much. It's, it's execute the plan to your approach. And there's a difference between plan and approach, but knowing that if my delivery changes, okay, were you behind in the count? Were you facing somebody that you faced before? What, why did something change? Not just this is changing. My front side keeps flying open. It's like, Okay, well, that's when a runner's at first base and you're facing a lefty and you're trying to get to the outer half. It's like, yeah, it flies open every single time because you're trying to push the ball out there. There's a reason that pitchers do what they do, um, especially in game in those situations. So I like to break down and really get to the core of why you're doing something. And to me, I think the diligence of a coach lies in caring about your players. And this is – I don't think you can fake caring. You can't fake to care about a player – and, and to do that, you have to know what it is that they believe about what it takes for them to be successful. So I'll ask a pitcher, and before I talk about anything delivery, I, I want to know what his delivery looks like. That way, mentally, I can feel where he uses his energy and kind of what gets thrown off. But I'll go ask the pitcher, what what is it that he believes when he grew up? Because we all have a belief system. What is that belief system that you the points that you have to get to in your delivery in order for this to be a clean pitch. And once I know their beliefs, I kind of know where all their issues stem from. So it could be something they were taught when they were 10 years old, throw over the top, throw over the top. Well, that continually puts their spine out of line, and as they grew up, they kept doing it. And now they've kind of built these inefficiencies that just because of verbal they heard. So I like to see where they're at and see what they're doing, but also see how competition affects it because I don't care how a guy looks in the bullpen or throwing in a cage with no batter or with, with nothing on the line. That doesn't show me anything. Um, I like to see where his head's at and what happens in that time in between he's throwing pitches or in between the dugout and and, and then assess from there. i got to find a baseline before I know something is really wrong. Man, so much of that stuff that you just brought up seems to to have been completely forgotten by a lot of professional baseball because everything has gone so far toward analytics and maybe it's just because maybe if you if you took a a macro view of baseball especially 50 years into the future like analytics just have come on so strong and everybody feels like to get ahead of the game we've got to be on the on the precipice of the newest analytics and and we've got to understand it and we've got to be able to apply it but it's like in doing so a lot of what you just talked about gets forgotten just the ability to <laughs> like you said just about a guy having a tight butthole out there i mean if you coach at any sort of a high level like anybody that's coached i've coached college ball so anybody that's coached college ball or above or even high school for that matter you just you see it happen and i don't care what the analytics look like if if you can't stay focused and if you can't kind of what another just a, a, a term that guys use at a high level if you can't slow your heartbeat in those types of situations and uh you're not going to be successful. I don't care what your analytics look like. I don't care how good you are in a bullpen and and how just off the charts your stuff is in a bullpen. If if you if you can't maintain that in a game, I, it's hard for me to see any success happening, especially on a uh, on a long term basis. And it just seems like a lot of this stuff has been forgotten because there's been such a push for analytics. And it just makes me wonder. Uh, and maybe you've already answered this, but just the difference, the dichotomy between analytics, coaching using analytics, and coaching using the the ability that you just talked about to be able to see these things in pitchers to be able or hitters to be able to have conversations and get to know guys and kind of know what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what happens to them in different situations with guys on base with nobody on base. Um, they're they're just as they're they're not the same thing, and I don't know that anybody, any person or individual, has necessarily found like the answer between how much do you use analytics between just kind of old school type of coaching or you know knowing the the sports psychology of it all and and what's going on in a guy's mind or whatever it is. But do you have any thoughts just about um, the amount that coaches should be using analytics? 
when they're talking with players or just when, you know, in season or out of season? Because I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are high school coaches. Uh, I'm sure certainly there are college coaches. There are guys that coach lower levels. There are players that listen to this. But a lot of our audience are, are high school coaches. If you were talking with a high school coach now, uh, Chad, how much do you believe a coach that maybe had access to Rap Soto should really use that in his coaching compared to talking about and thinking about and analyzing the things that you just spoke about? I think the, the analytics is a piece of the puzzle. It's not. It is not the puzzle. It is not. It is not a large piece of the puzzle. It's just a small piece. Um, with analytics, what, what it does, it it'll help show a guy. You know, it can help. It can help show what makes a guy successful. As far as we know, a guy has a good spin rate. He does all four seamers. He's got a good spin rate. We can work different parts of the zone. So we can we can kind of mold him that your fastball will play here in these different parts of the zone so you can put your focus here that's fine it and if a guy say that guy has a higher spin rate he throws a two-seamer well maybe we want to put a four-seamer in his hand to see if we can get more spin if he has a low spin rate then i know i want to stay with more two-seamers maybe more around the bottom of the zone with different off speed it gives you options and tells you how guys fit into where they can work the zone effectively that's what it does if if a guy doesn't have the spin rate he doesn't have those metrics to fit it you're not going to be able to work with him enough to fit a mold. You know, say the cookie cutter type of mold with analytics. I think that's kind of where it's at. I think it depends on what kind of cookies you're making, too, as far as if you want to use the cookie cutter mold. If I have all guys my size, five foot ten, skinny, that don't have angle and, you know, don't have ability to throw a break ball, analytically, I'm going to work different with those guys than I am somebody who has a higher spin rate with longer levers that's taller it it shows you how to work and where a guy should be working more that's what analytics does um as far as being able to you know force guys into that world and force them to work on their spin axis to get it true and and all this at a younger age as far as high school coaches i wouldn't go there um you go competitive competitiveness uh, why go analytics when i want to work on a guy to get his spin axis when his sole priority is trying to throw a ball with a true spin axis rather than command it low and away to the outer half when he's f- focused on trying to get his spin axis right what damage is he doing to the team and, and everybody else that's you know behind him as far as pitchers trying to trying to pick up on pick up the slack as far as if he's out there just throwing stuff working on his spin axis and falling behind and getting beat up and and causing more guys to go out there and, and pitch that aren't necessarily ready to pitch or going to be as effective just because he's trying to fit into the analytic world. I, I like it because it does show you some cool stuff. I don't, just because a guy doesn't fit into that, do I think you mark him off and say that he's not valuable? No. I mean, there's. I put out a tweet, or I mean, it was a post, maybe a month or two ago, and I listed off 40 guys in the big leagues with their average fastball under 90 miles an hour. And I caught a lot of heat on that as far as, you know, I guess the metric and analytic of velocity and me not putting the importance of it as far as impressing upon guys that need to throw harder. It's like there's here's 40 guys throwing to the best hitters in the world with an average fastball of under 90 miles an hour. Now, analytically, yes, yeah, some of them might have spin rate. Some of their slots might be lower. But the whole point being, if you're analytic-driven to get to ideal analytics, and you can't do that as a pitcher, I see that hurting more guys and overlooking more guys with pitchability and deception and ability to you know make guys move in the box and all this that don't have plus analytics that can actually pitch. So the analytic world, I think it's got a little too big. I think, you know, every team is looking for a mold the guys who have a high spin rate and can spin a 12-6 and, and and do this type of stuff and it's harder to hit yeah it is but teaching guys that from the get-go and telling them this is what they knew, need to do in order to get to the big leagues is false and there's guys everybody has a different tool set every single pitcher i like to compare it to different hammers there's tons of different hammers there's sledgehammers there's claw hammers there's ball peen hammers each hammer has a purpose. If, if I'm a if I'm a sledgehammer, but I, I need a claw 
to undo these kind of pitches in this situation, I'm not going to be able to do it. And so the guy's going to go out there and just keep slinging his sledgehammer. And if you try and make him do some things that another tool set can do analytically, he's not going to be successful. So you're, you're kind of hurting that guy. Um, I like it. I mean, get back to your point. I like analytics. I'm not a big advocate for pursuing them. I like to know the numbers, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to base the character and the pitchability off of the pitcher just because of his numbers, because those numbers really, to me, they show, they show no indicator of good command. Um, that, that, and that's what, to me, pitching is about command. To me, confidence stems from command, not throwing the ball 100 miles an hour. I can throw the ball 100 miles an hour and be on the mound completely lost because I don't have a clue where it's going, and I can't get ahead of guys, and it gets turned around when I'm behind. So it's not the velocity, and it's not the spin. It is command. The command is where you get your confidence. So I just think if, it, if the analytic kind of world right now, the way it's at, it's at the forefront, and it's and I think a lot, I got a lot of college players that come in knowing their analytics. I know my slider breaks five inches off my fastball plane at this at this spin rate in a second. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's like, do you know how to pitch a set this guy up and get him out in less than three pitches? Are you just going to sit there and try and throw your spin rate and then get him to chase sliders off out of the zone that are you know that are strike the ball? It doesn't make sense to me. Knowing all that stuff, it gets it gets muddied and it slows down the process of developing into a pitcher. It's funny uh, that you that you say that and and just it, it made me think of a of a story of a situation. I had a an ACC coach on a podcast, um, and he was telling me that one of the pitchers on their staff went to work with a prominent company uh, in the off season to work on a particular pitch. And this particular pitch analytically didn't look very good, but it was very effective in the regular season. Uh, and basically the kid thought, if I analytically make this pitch better, if I, whatever he was trying to fix, whether it was the spin axis or the spin rate or whatever, whatever it was, if I analytically make this pitch better, then it's going to be even more effective and and really be like a an absolute lights out like a big league type of pitch like I'm going to get drafted and and make it to the big leagues based on this pitch. So the kid went in the off season, worked with this prominent company. I won't say the name of the coach or the prominent company or the school or anything else, but the kid came back and analytically the pitch was better. It was more ideal uh, with uh, you know according to Rap Soto, but it became less effective. And the pitching coach was a little bit upset about that because, like, what the kid had was working. And it's to a point, it's like, if, if it's working, then why would you try to mess with it? And that's a case of, like, of, of a, a focus on analytics being just off base. Uh, there, there are other things this kid could have worked on or, or could have done. Maybe it was learning how to set guys up to throw that pitch in the first place, but they took a, basically took a pitch that analytically, analytically didn't look very good but was effective in a game and made it better analytically and somehow less effective. And, and there's no real explanation for that. I don't, I don't know how you explain that. If a pitch uh, has better analytics, you would think that it would be more effective, but it was not. And uh, it's just sometimes kind of hard to explain that sort of stuff. Um, let me ask you this. It, it maybe I don't know if this is a fair question. I'm not a pitching coach, but I'll ask it anyway. If I'm working with a pitcher, is there anything that I can look at analytically to tell me what his optimal secondary stuff would be? So, for example, you mentioned the the spin rate on a fastball. If a guy's got a really good spin rate, he's probably going to be more effective with a with a four seamer. Lower spin rates are probably going to be more effective with a two seamer. Uh, you know, I, again, I don't, I'm not a, a pitching expert, but it seems that higher spin rates are more effective at the top of the zone for fastballs. Lower spin rates more effective at the bottom of the zone. What about secondary stuff? So, if I get a pitcher and his current arsenal is four seam, two seam slider changeup or four-seam, two-seam curveball and no changeup or whatever. Is there anything that that I can look at analytically to tell this kid, like, hey, I think you be, might be better off throwing this pitch than that pitch because of the spin rates that you do create or because of your spin axis or because of your 
um, your arm angle, and, and 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 maybe you have some downhill playing because you're you're pretty tall and you release the ball. You have a pretty high arm slot. Is there anything like that, Chad, that, that I can look at uh, to help a pitcher just to sort of maximize his arsenal, or does that need to be a feel thing as well? I think it's it's more all of a feel thing as far as like the situations you talked about with that pitcher going back and. And working on it, you you can fine tune. Say it was the same reason that you know, you say Verlander had all that success when he went to Houston. It, it was more of a usage, and it was more of understanding that staying a little bit more behind his four seamer at the top is going to be able to give him more command, and it's going to allow his his breaking ball to come off of that plane a little bit easier. So it wasn't that it was a big adjustment for Verlander when he went from the Tigers to the Astros. It was just a, a difference of his usage and the thought behind using something to clean up the spin at the top of the zone to let all the other stuff play off of it. So it wasn't necessarily analytics that fixed him. He had all that ability within himself, but it just guided him to a direction with already plus elite stuff to become even better. So I think guys that, that go to the analytics that don't really even know what plays in general in the course of the game, but they're going to make all their pitches analytically better, and take away the priority of of command or what they're doing in that instance. And, and what I mean is, if I am working on my delivery, and I'll talk about the break balls and kind of what break ball to pick. If I'm working on the analytics and focused on analytics of spinning something, then I'm not focused on the actual priority I have of, of executing this pitch because I'm worried about the analytics of what the pitch is going to do, not to where I'm going to get the pitch. So I think if the the analytics trumps the competitiveness and the priority of of the plan and then at bat, if you're going analytics, then you're not thinking about the right thing. Building a delivery, building it like an arsenal off of your fastballs, you kind of want to do it off the breaking ball. I like to build a delivery and a build an arsenal off what breaking ball they throw. I don't. This is when I'm working with a pitcher. I'm not going to name the breaking ball. Don't name it. If, I, if I'm telling a guy after his throwing program, we cool back down to throw a curveball, his hand and his body is going to manipulate in a way where he tries to make the ball in his head break like a curveball. If I tell him to throw a slider, he's going to do the same thing. Instead of just grabbing a breaking ball, throwing it efficiently, and spinning it and letting it see what the break does. And from there, I can, I can be able to adjust if the slider fits my stroke, or if a curveball fits my stroke. I want to make sure the breaking balls fit my delivery and fit my deception without changing the consistency of of pitch to pitch. So analytically, you can look at which which pitches, which breaking balls actually come out of the same came out of the same slot. As far as the break and all that, you can let the hitters are going to tell you whether it's good enough or not. Uh, just like you said, the guy who went and worked on a pitch, whether that was you know, split change up slider curveball cutter whatever the fact that he threw it and trusted it in his delivery compared to trying to get it analytically perfect it's two different pitches there's two different intents behind those pitches so when i coach i like to coach the intent behind the pitch if i know that what your intent was when you're behind in the count when you're ahead in the count when you're even in the count if i know the intent you're throwing with then we we have a barometer to see what went wrong um so I'm always focused on the intent of an arsenal and a pitch rather than what the analytics of those pitches look like compared to the rest. I don't can, know if that can you explain? It. Can you explain what, what you mean just when you say, like, I want to know the intent of that pitch? Give me some examples of what that might be. So I'm going to intent with, with my pitches, and this is this is count-to-count dependent. So every single pitch I think that gets lost at which – the World Series always, to me, bring brings back up is the importance of the count. And then the World Series is so, to me, it, it's palpable because every hitter and every pitcher and every player on the field, when the count swings, every single pitch is either going to be ahead, behind, or even. Each one of those offers a different intent and a different purpose. So if I'm behind as the pitcher and my, if I'm 2-0 to a hitter as the pitcher, my intent is to get back into the count. I'm not sitting here trying to blow his doors and throw some center cut so he can get, so he can hit that and you know look to free up and do damage right there. My intent is to get back into the count, make a good quality pitch. 
if I'm if I'm O2 on a hitter, my intent is to wipe this guy out and to and to get him off base. So if I know the intent that I'm coaching pitchers from pitch to pitch, I know the game's never going to speed up on them. If they continue falling behind, and I can see it, like you talked about, at every single level, you see the game speed up, and that's really the difference between professional and amateur is knowing knowing when that happens and what to do to be able to slow it down to minimize damage. But coaching the intent rather than the analytics of I'm, I'm attacking here. If if I get into the mindset where I'm on the mound and I can see a pitcher, the game speed ups where it's, oh, man, there's runner scoring position. Now I'm facing the three-hole. I'm 2-0. I just fell behind. Umpire didn't give me that call. I know the intent's not driving their delivery. I know that it's the external factors starting to speed up. So it's always trying to get back to the intent of being a, of being poised, being under control, and executing a good quality pitch in the zone. That. That is my intent. If it goes to, oh, I can't do this. I can't let this happen. Don't do this. Don't hang this. That's, that is not pitching off your intent. That's just pitching off your thoughts and whatever's going on. So there's different ways to slow that down and, and to kind of, kind of help with that. But that would be as far as, you know, as far as analytics go, I'm not going to coach analytics. I'm going to use them for guys to help coach themselves and how they can use their stuff better. I'm going to coach the intent and the brain that's running all this machinery behind the pitcher. Very cool. And a different mentality than a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of pitching coaches out there have, I'm sure. Um, Chad, let's talk a little bit about your throwing, throwing programs. We talked before we started recording about, uh, a little bit about the, your throwing program that you've got for your, for your team now. And, and you mentioned in the podcast that, that, uh, there was like 10 pages of stuff just as sort of an intro to the throwing program. Um, again, just thinking of, of amateur players, guys before they get to college or even in college, uh, what, what should, can, can you tell me a little bit about what a throwing program should look like from beginning to end and maybe where you see some common mistakes with throwing programs. I'm sure that you get guys that come to you that, that played um, collegiately or were playing affiliated ball and now they come to you uh, and, and you sort of need to reprogram their their throwing program. Can you just talk about, about you know what a good throwing program might uh, might consist of and maybe some common mistakes that you see? Sure, yeah. I, I kind of pulled up this the throwing program I I wrote down. I'll uh, I'll go through this and kind of hit the key points. Um, but like, like we talked about earlier, I think the throwing program, you know, it, it is a program. It, it is a guys will call me now. I'll still get guys asking me to write them a throwing program, um, get ready for season. And so you want me to write down a calendar of sixty throws at, at these distances or whatever it is for the day. Like you just want me to write out the numbers for you. In hopes that that's going to prepare you, is like that. That's not the numbers of the throws and the rest and the distances is not what's going to prepare you. Yes, physically it will over time, but it is the mindset, the program that you are plugging into, and how you actually throw the ball when when, when you're doing your throwing program. So, I'm not trying to take away the individual when they're playing catch and I don't care about a pre-throw warm-up routine. These guys want to do these little weighted ball throws against the wall and all this stuff. That's fine. That has nothing to do with your throwing program. Your throwing program is, it's just the physical action of throwing a baseball. And that's all it is. It is the fundamental movement in which we throw a baseball. So I like to be able to talk about how to go about it as far as positionally and kind of what you're thinking about at each distance. And I'll hit on a few of those. But to me, the point is, is to have a general feel for the order in which things happen, meaning that that when I'm preparing my body to pitch, I'm going to do it from the progression of short athletic throws to medium range throws, medium range throws to long warm-up throws, long warm-up throws to medium range throws with intent as I'm working back in, medium range throws with intent to short command throws, and then short command throws to all my pitch and drills or mountain work, whatever it is for the day. So as we go through... I'll kind of go through a, a brief throwing program and kind of what I expect and kind of what I give guys reminders of when we're doing this every single day. But it's really just it's throwing like a professional. So the first, first thing I would say is know how many throws you make. 
I will say guys don't know how many throws they make. And as a professional in season, it's different out of season. If you're doing a build up routine, you can get up to 95, 100, you know, 120 throws. You can have that in rehab throws. We have that many in a rehab session. But if it's in season where your routine has to adapt to like a high stress environment, where you need to recover, then your workload's going to drop. And an optimal upkeep in my in-season throwing, it's around 65, 70 throws. That, that's kind of 75 plus is a high is a high end of the spectrum. With 55, 60 is kind of about what what's average for guys to stay at. And, and you're going to be plus or, plus or minus five for that day. You want to redo a throw at a certain distance, it's fine. But you have to know the the baseline of your workload. So. To me, a professional knows how many throws he makes. Um, the amateur, you know, the amateur throws hard and far on days that he feels good, and he stays short and light when he feels bad. That, that's an amateur. You know, a professional, a professional knows his routine, and he controls his effort in a way that he still gets his recovery throwing in while ensuring that his delivery and feel for the ball stays intact. So when I start warming up, a couple of things. Here are key points I have at dis- different distances. And I won't give out, like, I guess it's a scheduled throwing program because I have four different throwing programs as far as distances and throws and effort. But I'll give you kind of the regular in-season, and I'll walk through that one. Um, so if I'm going regular in-season, I am going to mark off distances. Now, when I'm doing a throwing program, there's a couple ways to back up. Now, I like to back up at certain distances rather than accordion throw. Accordion throw is, I'm going to throw a ball, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to throw, take a step back, throw, take a step back. So I don't want an accordion throw. If I'm accordion throwing, that means that I'm always stepping back to a new distance and I haven't gauged the effort before I got to move on. So I really, I'm really not working on anything structurally or repeatably because I'm changing my distance. Um, so I want to work at at a volume at distances rather than trying to go distance from volume, if that makes sense. And so as I back up, all my throws are relaxed. It's a relaxed arc. I'm just throwing. I'm not pitching. These are not pitching drills. I'm not going to go into a lift. I'm not going to get up and try and control my front side. There's things in my delivery that I'll touch on, but this is not a pitch. It's not a pitching drill. It's not a pitching session during my throwing program. This is, it's a conditioning exercise that I'm going to use to help my repeatability, my recovery, and to make sure that I'm actually being strong in those athletic positions to hold them, being disciplined. So as I go back, it's, it's a relaxed arc. And I really, I like to challenge, challenge yourself to throw the ball with minimal effort, but still on the line. And that, and that is what's unique to each individual. And only the person throwing that ball minimally on a line knows whether that effort is minimal or not. So it's not feel good, throw hard, feel bad, throw soft. That is not a professional mindset. So I do like to start at like 50 feet. There's all the little pre-throws, the swing underneath throws, or whatever you want to do before 50 feet. That, that's personal to you. I don't add those to the count of my total unless it gets over like 20 and a guy's just airing it out it has zero feel obviously i'm going to count those but generally before i get to 50 feet 50 feet is where my work starts and that's kind of where i want to start my counts at that 50 feet mark i'm moving my feet i'm shuffling from here until the rest of the throwing program is over i want to be moving my feet to get to get that type of momentum to stay in my lower half and to feel the rhythm the the rhythm of a delivery and your throw is set by the lower half. The lower half is your rhythm. The upper half is your timing. So if it's it's one of those two things typically that gets a guy choppy or hitchy in his throws, and it's either in his rhythm, his rhythm's too fast, and his timing's off, or his rhythm's smooth, and his timing's, his timing's late. So it's one of those two things, and, and the throwing program itself lends to you know, re- repeatable rhythm in the legs. And that will generate, that will increase as the distances go back. I'm not going to add effort. It's just I have to throw a ball with more effort at 90 feet than I do 50 feet. But I'm not trying to add that effort. It's just coming out smooth. So at 50 feet to 75 feet, the, you know, kind of the barriers that I want to hit here, like the points, 
is is I'm always shuffling. I'm moving my feet. My my eyes are up. My chin's down. So I'm always going to be backside loaded. My head's going to stay on the inside part of my back leg. And then when I finish, I'm going to finish with my arm working around my head. So my head's stable. And I want to feel myself land flush and let my arm work around my head. It's pretty simple there um, as far as the way it's verbalized. But the key points would be always move your feet. Your back foot is your direction. So the, the, another point of how a guy shuffles is, does he shuffle with his back foot? Does he go behind? Does he go in front of his leg? Or does he replace his feet? There's three different ways to shuffle. And it's making sure that when a guy shuffles that his back foot, he knows that his back foot is the actual line. That's the direction that his body's going to take. And, and being able to land flush. So that's at my shorter distances. And then as I go back, you know, 75 to 100 feet, that's my medium range. Right here, you know, it's still the same keys that I had at my earlier when I'm throwing. There's still, I want to focus on my head being stable. My, my eyes up, my chin's down, my arm's working smooth through my finish. And this is 75 to 105 feet. I'm same thing. I'm moving my feet. I'm shuffling with my weight back. I want to make sure that when I shuffle, I'm able to keep my head inside that back leg rather than letting all my weight shift forward to the front leg and then rocking it back. I want to kind of keep my weight back to build up uh, repeatability. And then as I back, I'm still getting loose. So as I back up a little bit further to my 105 range to 150 feet, I'm still getting loose. These are still getting loose. I want to feel how my body is landing. Uh, mentally, I'm trying to stick to landing. And a point I want to make on, I'm big on effort control in my throwing program. When I get to 105 feet to my max, I'm still getting loose, and the effort should be around 70%. I know we can't put a number on the percentage, but I like to say 70%, and that's lower half. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that's 70% of your arm strength or that, that grunt. I'm trying to get, if I throw 100, I'm trying to throw 70. No, that's that's not the point. It's my lower half is working at 70% of its maximum as far as my rhythm. My arm strength and my arm speed, I'm still only working right here as I'm going back a 2 on a scale of 1 to 5. So I'm, it's very low. I'm not adding in effort to my arm. It's my lower half that's controlling and letting my arm fly through. So... As I got back to my furthest distance, and typically that's around 120, some guys like 150. I don't put any numbers further than that because I don't want guys consistently going to a long distance and destroying their delivery. But the focus when I am at my furthest distance, it keep your shoulders and, and hips level. If you feel yourself, find the distance that you feel yourself collapsing. Your backside is going to collapse and it's going to start to squat to push the ball up and add more effort, that's destroying your delivery. That, that distance is too far for you to work comfortably and maintain good posture and athleticism. That doesn't mean that there's not time for you to go back and kind of air it out, but you need to know that if you're going back and you're destroying your delivery, you're teaching your body this. If I'm at a far distance and I squat down and I push to throw hard to get it to a certain distance, I'm teaching my body that, hey, when you really want to get on the gas and you really want to throw hard, this is what you have to do. So I see a lot of guys at long toss airing it out, and they, and then when they get on the mound, their body's saying, oh, you want to throw it hard? I remember how to do this. And then it tries to replicate what you did at those far throws on the mound, and it doesn't work. It's not on time. You're not going to have any command, and you're going to kind of feel lost. So – it's at those longer distances. I'm just getting loose, and I want to make sure that my lower half is the effort and it's not my arm. So when I'm coming back in now, I'm going to be back in at the 120, 90-foot mark, and I'm going to kind of come in every three throws. I'm going to come in at 15, 15 foot increments. Um, so three throws at 120, and this is when my the effort is going to start to crescendo. So it's a build-up to this point. The, the hardest throws in my throwing program should be after you come in, and they're going to be around the 105, 90-foot mark. This is because you're already you're already 40 to 50 throws plus into your throwing program, so you're loose. The body knows how to be on time, and you're coming back into shorter distances where you can actually let your arm work and pull down a little bit more out front. Um, 
I'm not going to use the word extension because it's going to turn into pushing the ball, but the effort in my arm now, my body should be around 80% working lower half, and now my arm can tick up to level three or level four. I'm never going to go completely out of control. I'm always going to work it around an eight. On a scale of one to ten, I want to stay at an eight because if I'm at an eight, the game adrenaline when I pitch is going to take me to a ten, and I'm not out of control. If I try and work it at 10, where I'm out of control, and then I add the game adrenaline to that, it's too much. If, I, if I'm if i at an 8, I'm able to tell when I go down to a 6 or a 7. So I know I can pick it up a little bit more, and it, was, it wasn't as much as I needed to. So I like to try and stay around at 8. So if you're coming back in, it's your 105, 120, 90 mark. These are your highest effort throws. And then after those, you're going to come back into your 90 to 60 foot mark. And this is kind of my change of focus or my two seamer focus or whatever else it is that you want to work on as far as throwing. They're still not pitches. Now, when I come into 60 or 90, 90 to 60 feet on my cool down process after I just threw my hardest throws, I really go to zone focus. And so what I mean by zone focus is, I'm able to stay glove side when I want to go glove side, or I'm able to stay arm side when I want to go arm side, or I can go glove side top when I want to go to the top, or glove side bottom, or arm side top, arm side bottom. It's just at this distance, my throwing is now more focused on my command and being able to focus on my release. I'm not going to throw the ball too hard too early. This this is the key, I think, that that a lot of pitchers, even professional pitchers I see a lot, that, that really don't know how to throw. They don't know when to get on the gas at the right time. I see a lot of guys throw spears, <laughs> and instead of trying to find their window of release, which is which is at the top of their delivery. So being able to finish up with command to focus and, uh, and taper down my effort now to finish up with my – I'm not a big proponent of flat grounds, but I, I do like getting off the mounds um, with the catcher up front with an effort of, you know, 50-60%. But the throwing program in general, it's a mindset. It's how you go about it. It's not, it's the most important part of your day. Most important part of your day. This is the blood of what your career is going to survive off of. You know, is it clean? Like, do you know what you're doing? And do you know why you're doing what you're doing at each distance? So there's lots of little kind of key points and in, in, uh, positional stuff that's in this that I, don't, I won't go over because I think that's, that might have hit the, the gist of it, but the throwing program is important. I, I don't really care about a pitcher's delivery or his velocity when I'm working with a guy. I want to I want to see how much stock he puts into his throwing program and, and how much how much care and, and to his routine does he have day in and day out. Because I know the habits that he's going to build in his throwing program are going to directly translate to to the mound, and so. My focus is all throwing program, how they go about it, how they do it, and making sure that this is where they can feel their body be able to, to do things right. And that way when they get on the mound, I'm already prepared. I'm ready to to take my command and everything that I worked on and loosened up straight to the mound and work off an angle. Great explanation. Great detail there. Um, Chad, I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. Just a just a kind of general thing that was kind of on my mind throughout this, and I just kind of want to see your opinion. Um, not something that should take that should take too long, but just kind of want your opinion about this. If you uh, between the lessons that you give and you know to younger kids and the the men that you're coaching, what do you think? If you had to say something that let's just focus on mostly kids. So a lot of the kids you're giving lessons to or, or college kids that, that, that you might be familiar with. Uh, young pitchers today focus too much on this and not enough on this. If you had to fill in those two blanks, could you? Uh, is there anything you could point to? Kids, young pitchers nowadays focus too much on blank, not enough on blank. <laughs> uh, see, I'll make it as general as I can make it. <laughs> cool. I think that too many young pitchers focus on throwing hard instead of making their body strong. Interesting second half of that. I, I think strong, I think strength is something that's very underrated. Even the guys I work with now, it's not about like it's not about a strength program. Uh, there's not one guy I advocate over another. If it's called a strength program, then that program should give you strength. So any guy should have their own program. But to me... Being strong is being able to push your body 
push your body past the limits that you know it's at, not what somebody else is telling you these limits are at. So it's it's knowing knowing how to be strong. I, I think these pitchers focus on trying to throw hard, and a lot of lessons I work with, you know, they want to work on delivery that's going to make them throw hard. I'm like, there, there's a basis that that you need to have, a foundation that you need to have of strength for your body to be able to keep up with what you're trying to, to make it do. If you're not strong, then you can't be stable. If you're not strong, then you're not going to be explosive to be able to hold those stability, to hold that stability at the end of your pitch and be able to let it translate into velocity. So I'm not talking about getting on a specific program and you got to do so-and-so's plow program and you need to do all these isometrics and you need to do this band. It's No, get strong for yourself. What does it mean to be strong? It's like we'll sit here and I have a friend that we, we do we do five hundred push ups a day and it's not because it's it's easy and it's fun to do and it takes you know thirty minutes to do it. But it's it's the point of being strong. Like there's you can do that. There's things that you can do to push yourself and to me that's the difference, man. If I'm gonna tell younger the younger guys I work with, it's fine. We can work on delivery. You're never gonna be able to hold it consistently if you're not strong enough to know what it's supposed to be doing and where you're supposed to be holding it. So until you get strong enough to be able to really hold these positions, to let your arm work clean and free, then you're always going to kind of be peeing in the winds. I mean, because if you're not strong, you can't hold those positions. You can't work on those things in a sophisticated, intricate manner if you don't know how to hold your weight and hold your body. Terrific stuff. Really good stuff all around. This is Chad Rhodes, everybody. He's the pitching coach with the Florence Yalls, uh, an independent team in the Frontier League. He spent time in the Marlins organization, played pro ball for quite a while, and just has an interesting take on things. Um, Road Dog, I appreciate you being on the podcast. It makes me so uncomfortable to call you anything besides Coach Rhodes just because I've got that college mentality. But, man, this has been great. I really appreciate the time and all the things that you share with us on this podcast. Um I'd love to have you back sometime. I just it's a, it's always an interesting conversation with you, and there are a lot of other areas that we could have talked about we didn't touch on. Uh, but certainly appreciate your time today, and maybe we can have you back on another podcast in the future. Hey man, I told you I'm easy. I'm here anytime. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I really, uh, I really only going to ask ask guys that I, that I believe in what they're doing, and I think that you're doing things right, and I like the information you're giving out. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much, and best of luck to you and the team. I appreciate that.